Welcome to the I-29 Moo U Dairy Podcast. I-29 Moo University is a consortium of land-grant universities in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. This podcast covers timely news, information, and research for today's dairy industry. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the I-29 Moo University Dairy Podcast. I'm Kim Clark, your host for today, Dairy Extension Educator from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I am joined by my co-host, Jim Salfer, Dairy Regional Specialist from the University of Minnesota. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Paul Fricke from the University of Wisconsin. Welcome, Paul. Kim, thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be here. And Paul, you have some ties to Nebraska, don't you? Yes, in fact, I do. I grew up on a dairy farm in eastern Nebraska. My dad is still farming there with my uncle. When I was growing up on the farm, it was my dad, my uncle, and my grandfather. We milked about 60 Holstein cows in a two-by-two swing parlor. And so uh, that, was, that was where I grew up. Ended up going to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln for my for my BS degree in animal science. And then I went to North Dakota State University for my master's degree in reproductive physiology. Ended up coming back to Nebraska at, at Clay Center at the USDA Meat Animal Research Lab for part of my PhD research. After I got my PhD in uh, 95, I went up to uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison to do a postdoc and was fortunate enough to land a position that opened while I was there. So um, I've been on faculty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison since 1998, and my position is 70% extension, 30% research with a focus in dairy cattle reproduction. Let's just jump right into uh, today's podcast topic, which is we're going to talk about reproduction and uh, kind of the revolution of reproduction. So walk us through, if you can, the history of reproduction on the dairy side, kind of how it evolved over the years. Yeah, so Kim, one of the things that I've been doing with my talks, it's been a very exciting time to be involved with dairy cattle reproduction. When I started back in in 95, if you go back to, or 98 even, if you go back to that period of time, and one of the things I do when I give my talks is I'll ask the audience, how many of you have been working in the dairy industry for 20 years or more? And, you know, there's some, there's some people out there that have been involved with the dairy industry for that long, but not everyone has. And so I kind of go through this reproductive uh, revolution concept. And um, if you go back and look at annual, uh, annualized 21-day preg rates, okay? So I don't know, I don't think we have to define what a preg rate is. I think most farmers out there um, are using preg rates if they're familiar with that metric. Average preg rates in 1998 were 14%. Okay, now just think about that for a minute. For those of you that haven't been around for uh, 20 years or more, 14% was the average pregnancy rate. And at that time, 20% was the goal. I mean, if you could have a 20% annualized preg rate, if you were 20% or above, you were just in a very small minority of farms clear on the right-hand side of that, that curve. So not many people could get a very good reproduction. Was that pregnancy rate, preg rate for heifers and cows, one or the other, both combined? So you mean first lactation heifers or non-lactating heifers? Uh, first lactation heifers. Yeah, that's everybody together. And that's a good point, Kim, is that, you know, really, I think there's really three groups of animals uh, on farms when I think of them from a reproductive standpoint. You have your non-lactating heifers, you have your first lactation 
uh, cows, and then you have your older cows. And so this would be um, the first lactation and the older cows together. And obviously, first lactation cows are the most fertile group on a farm, but you kind of collapse that all down. And when I analyze data on farms, I'm going to look at those separately, essentially. But yeah, that 14% would be all the lactating, um, all the lactating cows. And you know, the thing that was, there were two things that make up the 21 day pregnancy rate, the rate at which we can breed cows, which 20 years ago was limited, right? I mean, we were completely dependent mostly on heat detection systems at that particular time. Uh, so we were limiting on that side, but we were almost, we're all also limited on the fertility side. So I went back and I've, I've got a, a lot of dairy comp files that I've archived over the years and you go back and you look at some of the average conception rates they're in the mid 30s to low 40 percent range at that particular point in time and so really that that 14 percent preg rate was limited both from the service rate side and the conception rate side if you look at today and i've pulled down some data this is data from 2019 this is a drms herds you got about 7,000 drms herds constituting about 1.8 million Holstein cows in the United States. Average 21-day pregnancy rate now is 21.6%. And 60% of the farms are greater than 20%. If you look just at Wisconsin, uh, this is 464 DRMS herds, 183,000 Holstein cows. Average preg rate, 23.2%. 75% of the herds are more than 20%. And so it's only been within the last maybe five years, we started to see these herds pop up that have 30, 35, 40% 21-day preg rates. We just didn't see those herds, you know, 20 years ago. And so, you know, I, I make the argument that we have shifted the curve quite a bit uh, with reproduction. That's the reproduction revolution that I, that I talked what would you set for a goal for service rate and for conception rate if you're not at these levels, so your farmer listening, I really need to be visiting with my veterinarian and my AI representative to really try and improve those numbers? So my goal for service rate is above 60%. And I don't want to get into the nitty gritty on how this is calculated. You'll never have 100% service rate. It's the way the calculations are done. The best herds I see are in the low to mid 70% range. That's about as high as you can push that number because of the way that it's calculated. But above 60% would be my service rate goal. We can do those things now by combining heat detection with timed AI. And that's some of the things that I'll talk about, which has caused this, this reproduction uh, revolution. Conception rate's a little harder. And we'll, we'll talk about this throughout this, um, this session and maybe some future podcasts. Now we have to deal with sex semen. Okay, so that affects conception rates. It's getting more complex to look at fertility because you have to look at, as, we were, as Kim was saying before, first lactation cows, you have to look at them separate from the older cows. But now when we look at first lactation cows and there's a lot of sex semen being used, you have to take that into account. So, you know, the conception rate goal is harder, Jim. I would say we're able to push those conception rates average into the 50% range now. So we've gone from kind of, mid 30s to low 40s to being able to push those conception rates into the 50% range. And that's across all breedings, across all parities. So we've been able to shift that. And that's, that's one of the things that really, really changed with this reproductive revolution. I would say there's really two technologies that have driven this. One is the development of fertility programs. And what I mean by that, in 1995, the first publication on the OVSYNC protocol 
was published. And so that original research was done at the University of Wisconsin-Madison by my mentor, Milo Wiltbank, and his PhD student at the time, Richard Persley, who's at Michigan State now. And, you know, that was a huge deal with, uh, with Repro. It was, it was the classic, what we call paradigm shift. We could, with this new tool for timed AI, we could now really drive service rates. But over the intervening years, a lot of research that's been done, and this is a big area of my research, has been to turn these synchronization protocols into what I call fertility programs. And so now, because we have fertility programs, so for example, double obsync would be an example of this. Uh, G6G would be an example of what we call these fertility programs. And I think the thing that some people don't understand about these programs is not only do they push the rate at which we can breed cows, but we can get higher fertility on these programs. So that's really what's driving. And, and just as an example of that, we did an experiment um, a number of years ago now where we randomized cows for first service, to either be inseminated to estrus or set up on a double off-sync program to, to get a timed insemination. And there was a 10 percentage point difference in fertility when you randomize and control these trials. It was 39% conception rate for cows bred to estrus. It was 49% pushing that 50% mark uh, with double off-sync. So these programs do push the service rate and the conception rate side of the equation. And that's what's really, uh, really improved things. And then the other technology, and we'll, we'll stop and ask some questions here. The other big technology are these activity monitoring systems. So these new activity monitoring systems have given us the ability to have 24 seven surveillance of animals. They're great for the cows that are reading the textbook, the cows that are cycling, but the one thing, and, and I like to see a combined approach, the combined approach between heat detection and, and timed AI, because you'll never catch all of your cows in heat. We know there's about 20 to 30% of these cows that are not cycling. And so that's where we can blend these two technologies together. And it's the herds. I'm, I'm a member of the Dairy Cattle Reproduction Council, and we do awards uh, every year. The herds that consistently hit really high preg rates that are awarded uh, you know, gold platinum awards by the DCRC are these herds that are doing both. I mean, they're taking advantage of both of these technologies. You talked about these high pregnancy rates and we can achieve them. One of the discussions I get a lot on farms is what should our voluntary waiting period be then? Because we've moved, you know, production is so much higher than it used to be. Now we can get cows pregnant so much faster. Do you have any suggestions or ideas on where, where farmers should be targeting those, assuming they're running a high pregnancy rate? Jim, you know how to ask the really, uh, the, the really tough questions. Yeah, it's a great question. Voluntary waiting period and what, what, it, what should it be? There's, there's a lot of controversy out there. And it's frustrating to think that we've been at this for so long and we don't have like a definitive answer. But here's one answer that I'm going to give to that question. I think the voluntary waiting period depends on the strategy for first insemination. Okay, so it used to be we had a lot of different protocols and strategies for first breeding. We had off-sync, co-sync, pre-sync, the kitchen sink. You know, we had all these different sync things. Everything's kind of collapsed down into a few different major strategies uh, based on what I see with the DCRC. And one strategy would be to use a pre-sync, off-sync program. Very, very common program. Been around for a long. Two treatments of prostaglandin, 14 days apart. And then, and then a lot of herds will watch for estrus and breed after that second prostaglandin. Well, if I'm doing that for first service, I'm going to set that second prostaglandin 
at the end of the voluntary waiting period, which I think in that case should be about 50 days. Now you're gonna breed 60, 50 to 70% of your cows to estrus after that. And any cow that doesn't show heat, you're gonna roll into an off-sync program and you're gonna get those time day eyes in. So that's one strategy. So I would have a shorter voluntary waiting period with that strategy if, I, if I'm relying on estrus detection first. Okay, but there are many herds that are doing 100% time AI to a, a fertility program for first breeding. In that case, the herds that I see that are really successful are in that 70 to 80 day range at first service for time AI. So the difference is, you know, you breed 100% of your cows on a time AI program right at that kind of end of the voluntary waiting period. And I've, I've told farmers that, you know, I've, I've challenged them, what is, if you could hit your cows on the head with a magic wand, and make them pregnant on any day in milk that you want. What the, what the economic models would suggest is that 112 to 115, or 110 to 115 days would be kind of the range where you'd want to get your cows pregnant. That would be as if we had 100% conception rate, but even with these fertility programs, we only get half our cows pregnant. So you have to start before that. So that's where I kind of come up this 70 to 80 day range looks pretty nice because the average cow is going to be pregnant in that you know, 110 to 115 day uh, time period. Now there's other economic analyses that will argue about first lactation cows, are they different than older cows and all these kind of things. I don't know as we wanna get into that uh, in this particular discussion, but. As I think about that a little further, um, Paul and Jim, that's gonna change our 305 lactation time that we that we typically shoot for if, if we're looking at that 70 to 80 day conception rate are we going to see any other economic changes based on 305 day lactation as we have typically used for our economic numbers and milk production testing that we've used over the last 20 years yeah i think it's a good question kim and i think back in the day we used to talk about having striving for this kind of 12 month calving interval and those kind of things. And I think that's kind of where that 305 day number came from. But really in the reality, if you look at the, if, if you look at the lactation curves of these high producing dairy cows we have today, I don't think a 12 month calving interval is what you're shooting for. Unless of course you're, you're trying to do seasonal grazing, which there are some herds in Wisconsin and around the upper Midwest to try to do that. I mean, that's, optimal, but the, the, the linchpin for a herd doing seasonal calving, compact calving, is repro, and it's just difficult to get cows pregnant in that window. But I would say that the optimized calving interval would be between 13 and 14 months. So yeah, and I'll talk, we'll talk about this in a later podcast, but all these things kind of come together to, to make what, what we call the high fertility cycle. I'll talk about that in the in in the future but it, it it fits together really nicely kind of i think the picture that we have um of all these things paul one of the other concerns that i hear once in a while from producers maybe not as much as four five six years ago with all these fertility programs is the increase in twinning there's always yeah. a discussion if i'm on a program i'm going to have a lot more twins and of course none of us really like twins so do you want to comment on where that twinning fits in there and is that true is it false how do we avoid it absolutely jim uh, twinning is a is a long-standing interest of mine we could probably do a whole podcast on twinning itself in fact i wrote a review article if you if you look at uh factors that affect twinning 
many factors affect twinning. Obviously, there's a genetic factor. You can select for twins. There's a seasonal aspect to twinning, okay? Uh, heat stress has an effect on twinning. Milk production has an effect on, on twinning. And so really what we think is driving the increase in twinning across time, and if you look at the data, uh, there has been an increase in the Holstein population in twinning across time. So benchmark for twinning across lactating dairy cows, 8% twinning rate would be pretty typical. Some of these older cows in the 8% range, younger cows, like non-lactating heifers are less than 1%. Okay, so there's an age aspect to twinning. Now, what you said, Jim, is interesting. A lot of people think that these programs are causing twinning. And I think there's a reason people think about that. You know, in, in humans, when, when women go on the, these assisted reproductive uh, fertility programs, there is an increase in twinning. And that has to do with the way that those particular programs work. What we think is going on with the lactating dairy cow is quite different. We think the increase in milk production has decreased progesterone concentrations across time. And those decreased progesterone concentrations are associated with an increase in what we call double ovulations. What these programs that we have, say like a double obsync program do, is they get the progesterone levels back where they need to be and actually can suppress double ovulation in twinning. So that kind of misunderstanding leads people to say, well, what should I do if I have a herd with a high twinning rate? If you get a really high producing herd, that's oftentimes associated with high double ovulation rates, high twinning rates. And I tell them, well, you know, a double obsync program might be a good way to go. And they look at me like, well, that's, that's where all the twinning is coming from is using all these, these hormonal treatments. And in fact, that's, that's the opposite. And we've done some pretty elegant studies where we can manipulate progesterone and show that we can manipulate uh, double ovulation and twinning rates. So I think we got that story down, down pretty well. Now, I have quite a few dairies in Nebraska and actually farms across the Midwest that I visited that still use bulls. Um, mm. The whole dairy is using bulls across the herd. Some dairies are using bulls in their pens that they've tried a couple services of AI unsuccessfully. Are you seeing quite a few farms that are starting to go back to bulls or that have never transitioned away from bulls? Not really in Wisconsin. It's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting phenomenon. It, it's kind of a regionalized thing in the country. If you go to the Southwest, for example, where they have the dry lot dairies, there's, there, I think there's maybe more bull breeding down there. In Wisconsin, we don't have that much bull breeding. And as we'll talk, as we go through kind of some of these different topics we're gonna to talk about in this series, the new strategies that are brought about because of these high 21 day preg rates, I think bulls just don't fit into those very well. We have sex semen use now. We have beef semen on dairy. We have genomics where we can identify better, uh, better animals. Um, I just think that use of natural service sires doesn't allow for kind of cutting edge advantages that, that these new technologies bring us. There are downsides, there are downsides uh, to bulls. Jim, do you have many dairies in your area that use bulls? You know, I was a, I'm with, 
Paul, it's been an interesting phenomenon. When we, maybe 20 years ago, when a lot of these large dairies started up, they really struggled to get cows pregnant. And a lot of them had a few bulls around and or went to bull breeding. But now I think the vast majority of dairies have gone away from bull breeding. I would say the bull bred herds right now are the, really the smaller dairies. Most of the large ones kind of have this figured out. So it's been kind of from trying AI and not being successful to maybe using bulls or more bulls. And now most of these farms don't have a bull on the dairy for all the reasons Paul talked about. They want to use some beef semen. They want to, they got a lot of different, they want to use sex semen. They're really focused on genetic improvement over time. Yeah. And in, in this day and age, when we have the, this tremendously fast advancement in genetics with these genomic sires, you know, you get so far behind so quickly if you if you stick with these jumper bulls, I, I just think that uh, we we've not seen that phenomenon of moving towards bulls. I think a long time ago we kind of moved away from them in Wisconsin. If I have a farm that wants to transition from bull breeding to fertility programs, where would you recommend they start? So we both work in extension, and so my strategy with extension. I think it's more effective to move someone from point A to point B than to try to move them from point A to point Z in one step, right? So if you have a bull bred herd, start with artificial insemination. Just go with artificial insemination and get that up and running and working. And, and then you can move into, say, blending heat detection with, uh, with uh, timed AI programs and those, and those sorts of things. So I think a farm that's just 100% bull bred, it's, there's a lot of mechanics involved just with using artificial insemination. So you got to kind of slowly move along that spectrum and, and see where that goes. But yeah, I would highly encourage farms to, to, to take those steps, you know, try to, to try to say, what are my bottlenecks? What are the best things that I can do? I mean, just from a genetics advancement in the portfolio you can have of these young sires or these uh, genomic sires, I think that, uh, that, that there's lots of arguments to go to at least artificial insemination. One, one of the things I wanted to add before we kind of move on from this topic, uh, and this, the reason I wanted to bring this up is that I'm getting this question a lot, and I think that there's some misunderstanding out there. If you think of it, for those of you that know what an off-sync program looks like, okay, so you start with GNRH, seven days later you give a prostaglandin, and then 56 hours later, you give the second generation, and then you do the timed AI 16 hours later. It ends up that uh, the thing that really turned OBSYNC into a fertility program was, first of all, the concept of pre-synchronization, which is setting the cows up to start OBSYNC at the right stage of the cycle. That was first done with two, two treatments of prostaglandin. We call that pre-sync OBSYNC. And then the fertility programs kind of began with double off-sync. We actually use an off-sync to set up the cows for the second off-sync. But the, the change that really was the, the one that really was the rate-limiting step was adding a second treatment of prostaglandin 24 hours after that first one. Okay, so you, you give GNRH, seven days later prostaglandin, and then day eight, you give a second prostaglandin, and then you just finish off the protocol. That made all the difference in the world. And the problem with that is that farmers, it's another day that you have to go out, you got to find cows, you got to generate lists, you got to give them another treatment. So one of the ideas that kind of sprang from that is, hey, what if we could just give more prostaglandin on day seven, 
rather than give in a treatment on day seven and on day eight. So we did that experiment. We actually, this was, now there's two kinds of prostaglandin. There's Dynaprost and there's Cloprostanol. So the first study we did was with just with Dynaprost and uh, we had three different treatments. But here's the bottom line that people are getting wrong. Doubling the dose of Dynaprost on day seven is not as good as giving two treatments 24 hours apart on day seven and day eight. And what the questions I'm getting are people are saying, Dr. Fricky is saying that, uh, that doubling the dose is just as good. Okay, that's, that's wrong. Okay, so I don't know why people are getting that wrong, but for some reason they are getting, it's like a game of phone, Kim, is I think what's happening out there. You know, you put something out there and people hear these things and people change it. And so just to reiterate, you have to give the two doses 24 hours apart. Doubling the dose at one time isn't as good. Okay, so just wanted to get that out there so, so people understand that. You're exactly right. And that's one of the common challenges or whatever you want to call it that I always receive too. Can I just double the dose so I have to give fewer shots? Or, right. um, you know, if I double the dose of antibiotics, they'll get over it quicker. Well, we know it doesn't work that way. Yeah, and we've done, just to add, we've done a second study. There's a, there's a group from Germany that, uh, that I, uh, I know relatively well, and they saw that first experiment, and so they had contacted me and said, you know, would it be worth repeating that, that concept with the treatments we did, but using the other prostaglandin product we have, which is clopracinol? And clopracinol is different than dinoprost. It has a little longer half-life. So there's reason to believe that maybe doubling that dose might be a little bit better. We had a little bit of data that might have suggested that. But when that, that was repeated, again, if I can just simplify the message, doubling the dose of clopracinol on day seven is not as good as two doses 24 hours apart on day seven and day eight. Okay, so I just wanted to hit those highlights on that just to make sure that I'm, I'm trying to circumvent this game of phone that's going on out there in the industry right now. So get that right. You had mentioned activity monitoring systems have uh, played a role in conception and service rate. Talk about with activity monitoring how those can help or maybe they hinder anovular cows. They, they don't. Yeah, that's a good question, Kim. They don't. The problem with them, I think, is that um, what we know based on plenty of research that we've done and others have done is that at the end of the voluntary waiting period, say around 50 to 70 days, there's still about 20 to 30% of the cows that have not yet returned to estrus. So all cows are anovular when they're pregnant, they're not ovulating, and then they're gonna calve. And then there's, there's a period of time uh, when, between calving and when they resume cyclicity. And a lot of people had assumed that that's relatively short. But, but what we know from lots of research now is that 20 to 30% of cows don't return to estrus by the end of the voluntary waiting period. And so if you're relying 100% on estrus detection, you'll never catch all of your cows in heat. We, we did an experiment just to see. We put cows on a precinct ob sink. They had the heat detection system on them. And the question we were asking was, what percentage of cows will you catch in heat using a system? And it was about 70% of them, okay? So that kind of reiterates that 20 to 30% thing. So this is, again, where I get to um, the blending these things together. There's different ways to do that. There's some herds that will, we call it cherry picking during a precinct off sync. They will do that. They'll use the heat detection system that way. But you don't really get the advantage of kind of that 
fertility program for first breeding. So we have a lot of herds that will do that. We'll, we'll submit cows for first service, 100% uh, timed AI. You, you, you really lock in your voluntary waiting period. You breed 100% of your cows. You get that higher fertility. And then what they do is they use those heat detection systems to catch the cows coming back in the heat. And so that's the earliest non-pregnancy diagnosis you can do is catching non-pregnant cows coming back into heat, and they'll come into heat 18 to 32 days. There's a nice bell-shaped curve at that time. Anything not in heat by day 32 gets submitted to a resync protocol. So it's a nice way to blend those together. And again, for your listeners out there, and I, you know, I think there's going to be a pretty wide audience of people who, who will probably hear this. I want people to know that I don't think that there's just one way to do the repro thing. Okay, so there are different strategies. And really, a lot depends on your facilities. It depends on whether cows are on concrete all the time or if they're in tie stalls or if they're, you know, in dry lots and those kind of things. And so there's no one program that's going to, you know, be better than all the others in all the different kind of environments we have for cows. And so there's lots of different ways to approach this. But, but I think the one message I would, I would have, you do have to be aggressive. Okay, you, there are ways to be aggressive with the tools that we have by combining some level of timed AI with some level of heat detection. That seems to be the way that the, that the DCRC uh, you know, award-winning herds are, are getting these really high 21-day preg rates. Paul, can you give us like three to five summary points on the topic of reproduction revolution? Yeah, I, I think the good news that I bring to people when I talk about the reproductive revolution is that 20 years ago, it was really hard to get cows pregnant and we weren't very good at it. But now because of the adoption of uh, and, and development of these new technologies, including heat detection systems, activity monitoring systems, and the development of fertility programs and blending these tools together, now we have really been able to drive these 21 day pregnancy rates into, into levels that we just haven't seen before. And there's a very close tie between reproductive performance and profitability on a dairy. So it's just been good for the dairy industry to be able to, to improve reproduction the way we've been able to do over the last you know, 10 to 20 years. I-29 Moo Yu is an equal opportunity provider for the full non-discrimination statement or accommodation inquiries go to extension.iastate.edu forward slash diversity forward slash ext.